Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Donna Potter of Duke University in part one of their discussion on the problem with RAD diagnosis. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Today, my guest, Donna Potter, uh, who works at Duke University, is going to be speaking about the diagnosis of reactive attachment disorder, of which there's a great deal of controversy and misunderstanding around. Donna has been at Duke for quite a while, and I got to know her through the National Child Traumatic Stress Network and, and some other um, projects. She teaches in the psychiatry department there, and she is a, a senior clinical faculty consultant there. Donna, I know you've worn a lot of hats there. Um, yes, but <clears throat> if you could share a bit with our listeners just about your your own um, background and and your interest in attachment issues in children. Okay, sure. So, um, yeah, I've been working at Duke University for almost 20 years now, and um, I have been interested in parent-child relationships specifically with young children for a lot longer than that. So, um I originally was um, in upstate New York, um, got my master's degree in social work at um, Syracuse University, and then came down to North Carolina and um, have spent the bulk of my career here. And um, because I work at Duke University, I have the most amazing opportunity to be part of the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, which you mentioned, and um, to receive some really incredible training um, through connections with people at this university, um, but also at Tulane University and also um, through um, San Francisco and um, just really places all over the country um, are able to connect around issues related to child trauma, adversity, and attachment. And um, so what we know um, from the research is that those things go together um, and not always in the way that people think. So um, I have in my um, career always focused on early childhood and attachment relationships and trauma um, in areas from uh, doing, you know, case management with pregnant and parenting teenagers to um, being an expert witness in um, court around issues of reactive attachment disorder and trauma um, through um, doing more administrative pieces um, and finally landing, um, doing a lot of therapy in there and then finally landing in this position of spending most of my time teaching other therapists how to do evidence-based trauma treatment with kids. Yes, yes. And, you know, as as you are also describing um, that work, I'm reminded that you also put together kind of a white paper on reactive attachment disorder and the diagnosis and thoughts around that. And Mm -hmm. how long ago was that? It seems like that's been quite a while ago. It was was a long time ago. Um, That would have been, gosh, in the early 2000s. -hmm. Um, So long before DSM-5 was out, before yes. the DC zero to five, um, the new diagnostic classification system 
um, through zero to three was out. And um, yeah, we were really looking at the fact that what was in the DSM at the time for reactive attachment disorder really didn't um, do justice to uh, what we knew about the diagnosis from the research. And so the state of North Carolina Division of Mental Health asked us to put that together and I was the lead author and essentially just looking at um, what did we know from the research and how did that impact how we should be looking at diagnosis um, and interventions um, and, and what it would take to do a good assessment of a kid and how different was what that diagnosis really was from what you would get if you Googled the diagnosis. Yes, yes, um, because we know if you Google it, there are a lot of symptoms described that are not at all validated by scientific research, and right. people just came up with them and added them. And I think, and I don't, I'm not sure if you'll agree or disagree with this, but um, sadly, I sometimes feel like we're not a whole lot further along with a diagnosis to capture this than we were then. I mean, with the rejection of developmental trauma disorder for DSM-5 and I don't know, what is your, maybe I'm being too pessimistic. What is, before yeah. we... Yeah, well, let's see. Um, what would I say about that? I, it is disappointing that we didn't get the developmental trauma disorder. Um, I think that eventually we will go in that direction. Um, mm -hmm. I think that there were some pieces that probably needed to fall into place first, like really mm -hmm. understanding this piece about epigenetics. Um, I think some of that kind of stuff is really gonna help that argument. And so it's almost like, you know, as with everything in our field, um, there's a whole lot of other fields that have to inform us in order yes. for us to be able to move forward. Um, but that being said, what I'm really excited about in the DSM-5 is that we now have sort of, um, we're recognizing the fact that we are not talking about two sides of a coin anymore. Um, when we talk about disinhibited versus inhibited reactive attachment disorder, um, we're now really looking at this as two separate things that we now understand um, that while there are similar um, circumstances that need to be in place for these two very different types of diagnoses to occur, um, that they their presentations and their trajectories and the interventions are really pretty different. Um, there's, a, there's an overlap in that we know that the faster we can get a kid out of a very deprived setting, the better recovery they will have. But then beyond that, we have these really different trajectories. And now that the DSM is sort of recognizing that, um, I'm hopeful that that's putting us in a better direction. Mm -hmm. So you do, you do feel good about that that was kind of, it's not just the reactive attachment disorder that we have these two categories um, that we didn't have explained as clearly before. Right, right. That we actually can look at the idea that different um, kids get different ones of those two things and that some kids actually can have both. And, you know, it's an interesting thing when I look at, um, I was just uh, glancing at some research this morning on autism and this idea that perhaps we're not really looking at one spectrum, that there, that maybe it's not autism spectrum disorder. Maybe there are several different spectrum that come spectra, spectra. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the control <laughs> yeah. of that would be, um, but, that, but that there's more than one. And I think that, that that recognition that things can't all sort of come into one 
um, group is really an important thing to consider. And so when I think about these, what we used to think about as reactive attachment disorder, these two different sides of a coin, um, when, when you really pull them apart, you think, wow, that's so different. You've got, on the one hand, you've got these kids who are up in your face and, and you know, playing with your hair and reaching out to you as if you've known them your whole life when you just met them. Um, and that that is such a different thing from a child who is completely withdrawn, um, who might not even be very verbal and who may yes. be really depressed. Yes. So, so we used to just assume that because they both developed in institutional settings, they must both be the same thing. Right. And in fact, now we're recognizing that no, that's actually not the same at all. And one of the things that I love is when you look at the Bucharest Early Intervention Project um, and the research that they've been able to do, first of all, the fact that it's longitudinal is mind-blowing. You know, you're looking at now, I think, 16 years worth of research mm -hmm. that they've been able to do. Mm -hmm. And so looking at how they've been able to um, see those kids grow into teenagers and yes. that they are really very different kinds of kids. So yes. the kids who are um, pulled out of orphanages early across yeah. the board do better, right? Yeah. So if they're in the first two years, that's awesome. And then from there, those, the kids who had an inhibited presentation actually become indistinguishable from kids in the community. That's amazing. Yes, yeah. But, but that the other ones don't. And the, the thing that I love that is really exciting to me when I look at like some of the things that worry me in our field, the reason that I get so, the reason that I'm so committed to this diagnosis um, and, and sort of, you know, doing advocacy around it is because I think that um, when people talk about punitive or harsh strategies or pulling kids away from parents, um, that I think we now have the data to show that that is completely misguided. Um, that in fact, there is not an apparent strong connection for the disinhibited kids between the type of parenting and that behavior going away. So just thinking about, well, what do, you know, what does that mean? You know, that puts us more in sort of maybe autism kind of, not, not that it is autism, but that, that maybe some of the strategies that work for kids with autism in terms of socialization and reading mm -hmm. social cues, maybe that would work for those kids. But yes. that the kids who have the inhibited form, um, that what they respond to most is sensitive parenting, mm -hmm. which is kind of the opposite of a lot of the old rad types of behavior. Right, right. So, you know, that I think maybe just to give a little foundation to the discussion and not all of our, our listeners are, are um, clinicians. So maybe if you could kind of share the rad of the internet, uh, the rad that we had, you know, the, the way we had it before DSM-5 and then the, 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 the difference after DSM-5 with these two classifications. Do you think you could just briefly kind of... I think, I think I could. Help the conversation to have these different buckets, you yeah. know? So I think when uh, a little history on um, the rat of the internet. Um, I think that what is, 
what what's happening is it relates a lot to the fact that we don't have that developmental trauma disorder diagnosis. Um, because I think what people were doing was seeing a whole lot of distress in family systems and trying to find a magic bullet for it. And I think that what may have been happening is that many of those kids likely had neurological damage from in utero exposures to things or teratogenic exposures in um, when they were in institutions or or what have you. Um, so they were they were dealing with sort of this you know think about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Right. And, and that there is some research that suggests that there is a huge percentage of kids, obviously, in Eastern European orphanages who are dealing with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. But even in the United States foster care system, that's a big issue. Yes. And so if we look at just, you know, what do kids who have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder present like? Well, those are kids who struggle with cause and effect thinking, mm -hmm. who struggle with learning, who um, struggle with reading social cues. Um, so that's struggle with planning, good gracious. So thinking about if, if I've got a kid who has a neurological disorder, then essentially what I'm thinking about, this is my shorthand, is yes. that's a kid whose brain is not as flexible as another kid's. So mm -hmm. if, if a kid's brain is going to adapt to their environment, mm -hmm. then if that's the general rule, then the behavior management strategies of a parent are going to be effective if they're consistent because the brain of the child will adapt. Right. But if I've got a kid who has a neurological disorder, they're going to be less able to adapt their brains to my parenting. Right. So if a parent doesn't know that, they're going to be really frustrated and they're going to think that that kid is doing it on purpose. And they're going to point to things like, but he could do it yesterday mm -hmm. or, but he acts like he knows exactly what I'm talking about. He can mm -hmm. repeat the words back to me. So it must be negative intent. Right. And I, I think I often talk about that with parents. Is it, a can't or a won't. And I think too often assuming it's a won't. Um, and, you know, this is just a power player and manipulation and they, they won't do it. They, they wouldn't, you know, they, they did it yesterday. Like you're saying, you know, we yep. know the hallmark of some of these neurological issues is that you can function at a certain level one day and the next day different, the next hour different. And so then, you know, it's the default. Well, then that means they're, they're just trying to manipulate me or something. So is that kind of what you're getting at? That's exactly what I'm getting at. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so then the piece that is really um, distressing to me is that, um, looking at those behaviors, recognizing that that's a huge percentage of the kids that we're talking about, those kids are going to be more likely to experience all kinds of problems as they try to find a forever home. So they're going to be kids that have more placements because that behavior gets really frustrating for people. Mm -hmm. um, and those, those multiple placements increase those negative behaviors. And so over time, we end up with a kid who has learned from, you know, repeated experiences that the world is dangerous and they're not worth being loved and I can't trust adults. Right. And so 
you know, it's it, actually, I'll tell you, here's, here's an interesting thing to think about. There's, um, you know, the marshmallow study mm-hmm. with the four-year-olds, right? So, so we can look at... To share uh, what that is. Okay. So, so we, we look at this concept of inhibitory control, which is um, supposedly a great marker for um, determining who's going to be successful as an adult. I always feel like I'd fail the marshmallow test, by the way. <laughs> well, I would tell people, if you've never seen the marshmallow study, Google it and look on YouTube. It is so adorable watching what four-year-olds will do to keep themselves from eating a marshmallow. Yeah, I'm afraid I would just gobble it up. But <laughs> so, so what's interesting about the study is, so they, they know that kids who are able to keep themselves from eating the marshmallow do better in school. That's inhibitory control. Why do they do better? Because they can use strategies that help them to be compliant and focused. Mm-hmm. That's really important. They can delay gratification. All of that kind of stuff is inhibitory control. So we're talking prefrontal cortex, right? So yes. for, you know, decades back, we used to talk about the idea that, you know, these kids with reactive attachment disorder, they had no prefrontal cortex functioning. We had to, somebody had to act as their prefrontal cortex. And I don't buy into that totally, but there is definitely an issue of inhibitory control that's demonstrated in all the research. We know that's true for kids with the disinhibited form of reactive attachment disorder. So mm-hmm. there's these pieces that are true and mm-hmm. then it's getting mixed in with a whole bunch of stuff that's maybe been misinterpreted and, yes. and I think it's the interpretation that's the issue so back to the marshmallow study so you give a kid a marshmallow so they're in sort of a, um, a, a laboratory setting a four-year-old you give them a marshmallow and you say I'm gonna leave you this marshmallow you can eat it if you want to but if you don't eat it when I come back I'm gonna give you another one and you'll have two And so kids make this decision about whether they want to eat one marshmallow or actually resist the temptation and end up with two. And then there's this, you know, the theory is that those who are able to resist the marshmallow are going to be more successful later in their lives. And I, I might, I don't know the, the rest of that. I think there might be some, it might not have ended up that way, but regardless, my story still holds and here's why. So they've done a follow-up to look at how accurate is that representation. So is it always gonna be true that if you hand a kid a marshmallow and you say, I'm gonna leave the room, I'll come back with another marshmallow, and if you haven't eaten this one, you can have the other one. Is that always true? And it turns out that you can change the amount of inhibitory control that an individual child demonstrates by being inconsistent yourself. So if the researcher comes in and does things with the kid to demonstrate that they are unreliable, they will dramatically increase the rate at which children will eat that first marshmallow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what does that tell us? It lets us know that kids may have the potential for inhibitory control, but they've learned not to use it because they've been shown that people are unreliable. Mm-hmm. So if I think that people are unreliable, why would I do what you tell me to do? Just mm-hmm. because you say that's going to be the consequence doesn't mean it really will be. Right. So the only person I can count on is myself. Right. So when I have a kid who has maybe some neurological damage and then they're being rejected by family after family, they are learning, even with neurological damage, that I can't rely on adults. So then we have this other layer that comes in of more behavioral issues, more, mm-hmm. um, you know, more manifestations of attention deficit problems, but also learning issues in school and also um, some, you know, oppositional defiant behaviors and possibly even conduct disordered behaviors. But that's not because of reactive attachment disorder. That's because 
of the brain that they started out with that then went through all of these horrible experiences. That's not the same thing that we're looking at when we look at kids in institutional settings who don't have an attachment figure. Mm-hmm. So when we look at the Google diagnosis of RAD, what we're really seeing is, a, is, is essentially a, just a whole bunch of different pieces, some biological, some environmental, um, some stuff related to trauma history, and it's all mushed in together. And then we say, okay, that terrible thing that you're seeing, that's all one item, and it's really dangerous, and it means that your kid will never be okay. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is that's not true. Because if you have a kid who has a neurological disorder and you understand that, you can shape the environment for your kids so that they can be maximally successful. And so that's then helps them to see themselves as worthy. And then they respond differently to their environment and to the people that love them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's almost as though, you know, there was this initial idea, could this be related to this child's early awful experiences with caregivers and like but then like the umbrella or whatever just like mushroomed and got oh we'll throw that in there we'll throw this in there okay we'll throw all of that under this big rad thing um Mm -hmm. and and a lot of that is really unrelated or um unscientific extensions of the original diagnosis yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and dsm didn't help because, you know, when DSM first put reactive attachment disorder into the DSM, um, they did it in a way that actually didn't follow any of the research. So that wasn't helpful either. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's definitely, you know, everybody's got a piece of this puzzle. Um, but I, I think that the thing that scares me the most is that um, treatment for the Google form of RAD involves the opposite of what's recommended for a child who has a neurological issue and for a child who has um, trauma. And when we put those things together and all of the moves that many of these kids have had, it's a recipe for things getting worse and not better. And what we could be doing instead is helping parents to recognize how crucial it is to be responsive and to be consistent and to be warm and loving, but also to take care of yourself. So the, you know, it, it, it reminds me of, you know, if you imagine that this was how we would treat people who had Alzheimer's disease, you know, that the, that can you imagine if we had a world where um, people who had Alzheimer's disease um, were punished for not being able to feed themselves or mm-hmm. for not remembering your name mm-hmm. um, when they remembered you yesterday and, mm-hmm. you know, they were told to sit in the same position for, you know, extended periods of time and then were punished when they forgot to keep sitting. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it, it certainly doesn't make sense in that regard. Right. So why would we think that it makes sense in this regard? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, is very upsetting and <laughs> disturbing. You know, I think it really brings home when you give that example of an Alzheimer's patient, you know, some of what is being done to these children in the name of treatment or helping them heal is just absolutely re-traumatizing, mm-hmm. um, reinforcing any internal working models that they have of the world being unsafe and scary and, right. um, 
and 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 their views of self. Um, I think now we're seeing a lot of clinicians I know, and and maybe you're seeing this too, who are treating children now that they're a little older, and and these children went through. I guess what some people call some of these old school ideas, a lot of rigidity, compliance, no matter what, you know, a lot of separation, a lot of taking away of things. And it's just a really sad story, both for the child and the parents, because once the parents have this information, then they're, they themselves are also devastated. Right. Right. You know, like, Oh no, you know, things worse. I was doing what some, you know, professional or whoever coach or whatever told me, Mm-hmm. Um, so that's hard too. It is really hard. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's such an interesting thing when you look at, you know, these, this, this group of parents who find this diagnosis, um, they are people who, you know, especially when we're talking about kids from Eastern European orphanages, these folks worked their tails off to get those kids. They wanted to be parents so badly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to, and then they, get these kids who have all these issues that feel so overwhelming and they don't have the support they need and they're exhausted and they're, you know, just bereft. And so they have nowhere else to turn. And then they find this person who says, Oh, I understand this. I know exactly what's going on here. I can make what you do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, in, in my conversations with some of these parents, what I've heard is just the, the anguish that they have with how they've been told to, to interact with their kids, that it feels wrong. It feels like it's not, um, it's going against their own gut instincts of how they should be parenting. And of course, what is so heartbreaking is that's because their gut instincts are the biologically wired drive to facilitate an attachment relationship with a child. Like yeah. they, are, yeah. and they are literally being told to go against that. Yeah. And I know you know this too. If you really want your child to heal, you will go against that and you will give them this other thing that they need. Mm-hmm which Mm -hmm. is just awful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, it's just awful. Um, Very upsetting that, you know, our parents who who are feeling weight, and it's the same with me. I've had a lot of people that I really didn't think that this felt right, but I wanted to do whatever would help them heal from this. And I had already tried all my strategies and they hadn't worked. Yes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe a couple therapists too, and that hadn't worked. This concludes part one of the two-part conversation about the problem with rad diagnosis between Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Donna Potter. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.